Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. The start of the Lunar New Year in China, a time known as the Spring Festival, brings families together for a season of feasting. However, since the outbreak of COVID, celebrations have been marred by frustration and anxiety. In 2022, travel around China was severely restricted due to the pandemic. This year, the Lunar New Year offers people a chance to reunite after years of separation. However, it worries doctors who fear it could lead to a spike in COVID, costing many lives. On this week's podcast, we'll be considering the social and economic implications of the COVID situation in China with a guest who's ideally qualified to talk about this issue. He's Mark Williams, Chief Asia Economist at Capital Economics. Mark, welcome to China in Context. Thanks, Duncan. A pleasure to be here. Now, Mark, the Spring Festival has been described as the world's greatest wave of human migration. It's China's most important holiday, with millions of people on the move. How do you expect people to behave this January? Well, there have been four years now that the annual migration has been disrupted by uh, COVID. Now, this year, there are no uh, restrictions on people traveling, but there's an awful lot of COVID spreading around the country. uh, And so that might make people a a little bit nervous. We're seeing about half as many people moving around the country as would have been normal in the pre-COVID times. Uh, But that's still actually about 50% more than we saw in either of the past couple of years. So it does feel like things are kind of creeping back to, to normality, even though they're not there yet. I'd like you to cast your mind back to 2020. That was soon after cases of coronavirus began to appear in Wuhan in China. Now, at that point, people were allowed to travel around China quite freely. And many people took the opportunity to make trips during the spring festival season. What were the implications of that? The first half of January 2020, the government was was assuring everybody that everything was fine. There was nothing nothing to be worried about. And then later in January, that Wuhan itself was locked down. But other parts of the country for the next two or three days were able to go about their business as usual. So people continue to go back to their hometowns until eventually there was a national lockdown then. Uh, now, the way that that then panned out meant that a lot of people had already returned for New Year. So they were with their family in rural areas if, if, if they were migrant workers. And that turned out actually, uh, well, it turned out to be uh, bad in, in, in some ways and, and, and good in others. So bad in terms of the spread of COVID, it meant that people were moving around. It popped up in lots of different places. But because traditionally people get in a lot of food ahead of Lunar New Year, it was not a bad time to be locked down. In 2020 in in China, people were locked down having already bought all of their food for the Lunar New Year holiday. And so not a bad place to to spend uh, the next few uh, days. And in fact, things change remarkably quickly. So that by the middle of February 2020, the second half of February, the government at that point was actually trying to encourage people to go back from their hometowns and to get back to the cities and the towns where they'd been working. And understandably, a lot of people were a little bit nervous about doing that, worried about that. And the government was the one saying, no, come on, it's time to get back. The pandemic is, 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 is over. Uh, we don't need to worry too much. A lot of companies were actually hiring buses and sending buses to, to rural areas and trying to uh, get migrant workers to jump on the bus and come back to the, to the city. So China went through that whole cycle in January and February before the rest of the world really woke up uh, to what was going on. Last year, 2022, 
there were harsh travel restrictions and lockdowns due to what was known as the zero COVID policy. Then there was a rather sudden U-turn on that policy in early December 2022, with most of those restrictions lifted. What do you think were the reasons behind that change? Well, we don't know for sure. The leadership has not really explained itself. Uh, And there were a number of things going on. There were protests uh, in China that showed quite how unpopular the zero COVID policy had become. It It was leading to hundreds of thousands of people having to quarantine themselves every day. Uh, At the same time, the testing system was proving extraordinarily expensive for for local governments. So there are a lot of pressures on the zero COVID system. But I think the main factor actually behind why policy changed was simply that it it was overwhelmed. And actually, I don't think that the leadership made a choice at all to walk away from zero COVID at that point. I think the system just failed. If we look at what was happening at the end of November, the the National Health Commission announced a big push to raise vaccination rates of the elderly, which were worryingly low. And they said that this was important to allow the country to open. And it was only a week later that uh, China gave up on on its testing uh, regime. People no longer needed to show green health codes on their apps, on their phones to go into public spaces. So if that had been the plan all along to to relax things at that point, then surely uh, they would have launched this vaccination drive for the elderly far sooner than just one week before. So it seems to me that um, there was a lot of pressure on it, but ultimately the system just fell apart because infections grew well beyond uh, the system's ability to control. Well, there's a lively debate going on around the world now over the best approach to take towards people who are leaving China on trips abroad. Should they be tested on arrival at their destination? Or would a negative COVID test obtained in China be enough to prove they're not at risk of spreading the virus? What do you think is the best approach? Well, most countries now just accept that COVID is circulating widely in their population. Uh, And in those circumstances, it makes no sense at all to single out a few hundred or a couple of thousand Chinese visitors arriving each day. Personally, if I was flying around the world on a long-haul flight, I would like to know that the people sharing the plane with me were not carrying a a highly infectious uh, disease. But from the point of view of public health in the destination country, I don't think it really makes any difference at all. The numbers of people circulating in the UK right now with COVID is is many orders of magnitude larger than numbers of people uh, that could be arriving from China. Well, China says some countries are using COVID measures for political purposes. In fact, in January, after South Korea and Japan placed COVID restrictions on Chinese travellers, China actually stopped issuing short-term visas to people from those countries. I'd like to hear your view on that. Well, as I say, I don't think that it makes a great deal of sense to be singling out Chinese uh, uh, people for these border restrictions. There's a lot of COVID in China at the moment, but there's a lot of COVID all over the world. So if a country was really trying to Uh, get a hold of infections domestically, then they should be screening people from every country and they should be making a bigger effort domestically. Uh, That isn't happening. So it does feel like the Chinese people are being singled out here in a way that is unfair. Having said that, there is a degree of hypocrisy in the Chinese government's response because it too requires people to show negative tests uh, before they can get on a a plane to, to China. So it seems slightly strange that they are then protesting that other governments are now requiring the same of Chinese travellers. Now, Mark, I know that you and your colleagues at Capital Economics try to get very reliable, authenticated information from China, 
But I wonder if you also follow Chinese propaganda, because my colleagues at SOAS inform me that there's been a distinct change in tone with regard to COVID. Last year, the virus was presented as a menace to be avoided at all costs. But now Chinese citizens are told that catching COVID is perhaps only a little bit worse than catching a cold. What's going on? It certainly can make your head hurt if you try to follow along with the official messaging. I mean, in, in early November, state media were, were talking about the terrible impact that long COVID was having on people outside China. They were talking about this leading to long-lasting illness, lowering economic productivity. That was in early November. By early December, the same state media were saying that actually long COVID was nothing to worry about and maybe it wasn't really a, a thing at all. Uh, so there's been these remarkable uh, shifts, which I think is simply the state system having to catch up to the fact that zero COVID has collapsed and it, it, it doesn't look good to admit to a loss of control. Uh, and so it's having to be painted as, as a deliberate decision, a conscious decision by the leadership. Um, but I think that the, the, sort of the flailing around of the, of the messaging is uh, tells us that um, this wasn't the plan uh, and things have got out of control. From an economic perspective, what do you expect to happen to China now that it's reopening? Well, the situation is changing very quickly. If you had asked me in the middle of December um, how this was going to play out economically, I would have uh, expected weakness to last uh, in January, probably February, before the economy started to recover, um, because people will be worried about going out, uh, getting infected. But what we've seen over the past few weeks is that the virus has passed through China's population incredibly fast, much faster than I think anyone expected. So there's some credible reports from major parts of China that 70, 80, in some cases, 90% of people have caught COVID just in the past few weeks uh, since uh, late November. So many people, most people uh, will have recovered. There's a hidden public health cost to all of this. Some very sad anecdotal stories coming out about a lot of uh, people dying. But for um, the, the people who aren't particularly vulnerable, they've come through this and now there's already signs we can see them out on the streets. Uh, we follow at Capital Economics, we follow things like ridership numbers on the subway systems uh, to give us a sense of how many people are going out uh, to the shops and those numbers are rising quite, quite rapidly. So we're seeing a much faster pass through uh, than we had thought likely. In other countries, it took a few months for, for them to reopen and get back to something like normal. And that's just taken a few weeks in China. So the near term is, is pretty positive, I think. Uh, we're going to get some very strong economic data. But there is a bit of a shadow hanging over all of this. I think the whole episode casts questions over the competence of the leadership, the way that policies are made, the way that policies are changed, the degree to which a lot of decision making seems to have been concentrated on the senior leadership, particularly on Xi Jinping himself. Uh, so that, I think, for economists, should raise questions about the long-term outlook and the ability of China's leadership to craft policies that are effective in supporting the economy over the, over the long term. Let's try to put this in a global context. It's not a bright picture here in the UK economically, or indeed in the rest of Europe, with a prolonged recession looming in most countries. How do China's problems compare to other countries? Well, China was, of course, first into the uh, pandemic. And then in many ways, it felt like China left it behind. The rest of the world was going in and out of lockdowns in the second half of 2020 and 2021. And China, by and large, was 
is carrying on as normal life in, in much of China, um, except for very local lockdowns uh, continued as normal. Now, all of a sudden, China has been thrown back into it. And China now is going through what other parts of the global economy and other countries went through in, in uh, 2021 and early 2022. So right now, it, China is reliving a lot of those uh, difficulties. It's going to have a rebound as it opens up over the next few months, we're going to see consumers going out. They've saved money over the past few months when they haven't been spending so much. And so some of that's going to hit the shops over the next few months. We're likely to see a big wave of Chinese tourists uh, leaving China for the first time in three years. And then later on in 2023, China will move on from this sort of acute phase of the reopening of the economy. And at that point, we'll start to get into focus a lot of the other problems that it has been dealing with, things like its relationship with the West, uh, the efforts from particularly the US to decouple key parts of its economy from China's economy, China's lopsided growth model, uh, the worries about excess debt. These problems were there over the past few years, and in many ways, they've been overlooked because of the focus on the pandemic. Uh, but the focus will be right back on them, I think, over the next few months. You lead a highly experienced team at Capital Economics with a great deal of insight into China. Apart from COVID, what are the other issues that you'll be considering in terms of China's economy in 2023? There are so many big stories playing out in China at the moment. It's a really fascinating time to be watching. The, the property sector has been in a crisis for the past two or three years, but that crisis appears to be entering its, its end game. We'll be watching how that plays out. And that has implications, not just in China, but for other parts of the world, because China's property sector is, is huge. It's so big. China's relations with the West appear to have warmed a little over the past few months. So there's a question of whether that is a genuine shift or whether it's just an effort to buy time until China's industry has become a bit more self-sufficient. And at some point this year, China will lose its place as the world's largest population to India, uh, which I think is symbolic of how so many fundamentals about China now seem to be open to, to question. So right now, it's all about the pandemic, it's all about reopening uh, in China, but there's all these other really big, globally important and interesting stories to be following as well. Well, I hope you'll come back on the podcast and talk to us about some of those other important issues soon. That was Mark Williams, Chief Asia Economist at Capital Economics. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute in London, and you can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team. Thank you.